0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello! Welcome to the Longform Podcast. Uh, I'm Max Lenskip. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lamer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello, Max.
0: Good to be back. Hello, Aaron. Hey, I, I'm Aaron from longform.org. That's Evan Ratliff, formerly of The Atomist, currently performing journalism. You're really committed to re-identify yourself every time now. Is that I, I'm just gonna say, like we 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 said we were going to do it last week. Let's keep it alive for like half a week more. Like at least a half-hearted attempt here.
2: Great. Well, I am Max. I'm from the website longform.org, which we recently posted our Best of the Year series. And uh, I am the one who conducted the interview this week. And it was with Ed Young,
0: Who was on our Best of the Year
2: list. He certainly was. Uh, I talked to Ed, faithful listeners will remember, uh, back in March, right at the beginning of the pandemic, he had just written this piece called How the Pandemic Will End that had felt like the first sort of bird's eye view of this thing that made any sense. And he has gone on to publish an incredible amount this year. He's written eight big feature stories, uh, multiple cover stories for The Atlantic, looking at the pandemic from all of these different angles. He's uh, broken a fair amount of news, particularly around long haulers, who are people who have had COVID symptoms and complications for months and months and months. And so we talked about what this year has been like for him, to be covering this thing so relentlessly, the toll that that's taken on him, what he has learned about himself, what he's learned about America. It's our last episode of the year, and it felt like checking in with Ed again was uh, was the right way to finish things out.
0: We have been uh, brought to you all year by the good people at MailChimp. Their support makes this show possible thanks to them. Thanks to everyone for listening all year. We don't, we don't thank the listeners enough. Thanks to the listeners. Thanks to everyone who sent us an email all year. I feel like we've gotten a more more mail during the pandemic than ever. So thanks to all the emailers during the pandemic. And now here's Max with Ed Young.
3: You know, I, I was thinking the other day that, um, you know how when like two people walk down a corridor at each other and like one of you steps right and the other person accidentally steps the same direction, you're both like, oh, 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 it feels like every interview I do now begins with like some version of that dance <laughs> as you both like try and negotiate the usual pleasantries, but also recognize that everything is shit. Yeah, I feel like um, that just
2: that question of like, how are you doing? has become this like... uh ink blotter test or something you know where it's like right right eight out of ten times something like that i feel like people are like um oh good 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 you know yeah and then like <laughs> 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 and then 20 percent of the time it's just like i'm fucking terrible clearly right <laughs> clearly i'm terrible yeah this is this is a hellscape how else could i possibly be you know just like yep. they just yep. can't hold it back you know
3: Yeah. Uh, Well, I appreciate
2: you doing this again, man. Thank you.
3: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a a real pleasure. I mean, twice in one year, my God. Well, it felt like your year, kind of. Or it was a year that you were in a unique
2: position to try and sum up.
3: Yeah, it has been something, that's for sure. (laughs) It has been a very different year than what I thought it was going to be uh, this time last year. I wrote
2: to you and asked you to come back on. And it's very rare, I think, that we've had someone on twice in the same year. Mm-hmm. and I was trying to think about why I asked you to come back on, which maybe is, you could argue is something I should have figured out before I asked. But... Um,
3: was, was it the bribe? <laughs>
2: yes. Yeah, it was uh, It was Jeffrey Goldberg playing me under the table. Um, right, right, right. No, man, I think there are a couple of things, but one of them is, I think I really genuinely wanted to know how you were doing.
3: <laughs> um, well, I have been better. Um. Huh, how to answer this question? Um... Look, on, on one hand, it has been, by some margin, the most professionally fulfilling year of my life. I feel like the work I've done has been just so much more ambitious in scope and better in craft than a lot of what I've done before. I think that I feel proud of it. I think it really has contributed to this very difficult moment in time. And, you know, we can talk about specifics of that. Um, So I feel very proud of the work. I feel really privileged to, I think I said this the last time we chatted, to have a role that offers a very clear way of helping out Mm -hmm. in this big moment of societal turmoil. Like the role and the, the responsibility is very clear. And on the other hand, though, it's been very, very draining the work is, you know, no, not as demanding as, say, an ICU nurse's job, but I think that it has been very difficult to just stare directly into the sun for nine months, and I, I am burned out. Um, yeah. The urgency of the moment and the high stakes of the moment massively exacerbate the usual pressures I would feel about getting things right making sure that the pieces are nuanced making sure that I'm really grasping the full complexity of what I'm writing about usually I have to do that about a very specific focused thing in the area of science that I have some experience of covering and now I'm having to do that with this very very complicated omni crisis that you know feels like it's changing constantly I am trying to give readers a platform that they can stand to observe this raging torrent that is the pandemic, this cascade of information that is threatening to sweep us all away. You know, I'm trying to give people like a rock on which they can stand so that they can observe what is happening without themselves being submerged by it. But like I am trying to construct that platform (laughs) while also being submerged in it. Um, and I'm also really struck by a thing that someone who works in preparedness told me that, um, so a combined two things. So Jeff, our editor in chief has said that, um, magazine writing is very good at looking at the past and at the future. Whereas like newspaper writing tends to be very focused on the present. And I think that's right. And preparedness, the work of preparedness is actually very similar to that. So you're constantly looking at your historical vulnerabilities And you're also looking at where you're going to be vulnerable, like three or four or five steps ahead into the future. So it's not just doing the like lateral looking work Mm -hmm. of trying to look at all these areas of society, but also looking like back in time to how we got to this place and then how we're going to end up several years from now. And it's just like intellectually exhausting Even before you think about the stakes of it, like the emotional burden of having to write about something where a lot of people deem to be a hoax.
2: Right. It's not just like you were like um, building a rock in Whitewater Rapids, but like people were walking by the rapids and being like, that's a placid lake you're standing in.
3: Right, right, right. Um, (laughs) Or like having read a raft building manual (laughs) for the last two hours... I'm going to criticize the rap that you're building. <laughs> it looks wrong to me. <laughs> well, I
2: I want to stay here for a second in, in how you actually build the thing because it did feel to me, I mean, you and I talked after your first piece in March and it did feel to me like these big swings you took throughout the year, they felt the way that I think you intended them to feel. Like they would come and mm. I would be like, oh, now I'm going to understand this better because I, I was like everyone else just struggling to um, navigate the whitewater rapids of information about covid all year and i was trying to think about like analogous pieces of journalism like um rock in whitewater rafting stuff and it reminded me of like um the giant pool of money mm-hmm. the alex bloomberg piece during the financial crash it was like the first time i understood subprime mortgages really you know right and it was like yeah. while that was happening and zoomed out. And I feel like you did it like four times or five times over the course of this year. And I just, I don't
3: know how you build that many rafts. Um I also don't know. Um So since I came back from book leave in mid-March, I have written 21 pandemic stories that have all but one been more than 2,000 words, and eight of which have been at the sort of five to 8,000 word mark. So I was underselling you with your five rafts. <laughs> right, that's right. It's a lot of rafts. Uh, the final one is being edited right now, and that should come out between Christmas and New Year. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of them. And um, we talked the last time about the fact that I was given this specific mandate to take big swings by the Atlantic, and that has very much been part of my mindset throughout this entire year. I've tried repeatedly to almost second guess the Zeitgeist to think like two steps ahead and and try and like answer the question that was already beginning to be on everyone's minds and maybe they didn't even realize that's what they were asking. So, you know, obviously the first one was how will the pandemic end? And then there were others like why is all of this so confusing? And like why is what I'm experiencing so different to what I'm seeing on the news? Mm-hmm. Or like how did it come to this? The first big cover story I did or um why do we seem to be stuck in circles? That was the one I wrote about the pandemic spiral that we're all trapped in. So a lot of this was a very deliberate attempt to not get sucked into the business of doing daily piecemeal stories about whatever new thing was happening at the time, but to really try and zoom out and to continue giving people that very broad, very overarching look that helped to ground them in the current moment but also connected what was happening around them to like the big arc of history mm-hmm. all of the us's historical inequities um how we've thought about disease and pandemics and preparedness and uh, how we think about healthcare and you know the social determinants of health all of that stuff and then, you know, constantly trying to remind people about the fact that more pandemics are likely in the future. The consequences of this one will be very long term. So, yeah, back in time, back into uh, the head to the future.
2: You're saying it sort of casually, Ed, but what you're describing seems incredibly hard to me. Like you're in this whitewater rapids of information. I assume you're talking to experts and scientists and policy people constantly talking to frontline workers and healthcare workers, constantly, like, you are in the vortex of this thing. How do you do the work of zooming out to think about what those big questions that people who are so far from that level of information are asking? Like, that seems quite hard to me.
3: Yeah, it it was... Um... It was not easy. I was a bit surprised at how generative the work was. Like, the more I did this, the easier it was to find the next thing. Like, I tried to over report every one of these big stories that I did. So, you know, everyone I'm talking to, maybe 30 to 40 different sources, maybe of whom somewhere like 20 get actually quoted in the story. So there's always like more material that I'm thinking about and dwelling on. And The Atlantic does have a very generative culture. We have a very, very busy slack room where we talked about the pandemic and all the kinds of different angles about it throughout the year. It's very collaborative. People are constantly bouncing ideas off each other, asking questions, sharing links to important things you know I've heard so many stories from really dysfunctional newsrooms where people are hyper competitive and really trying to carve out their own like micro beats in this big story and I think we try and help each other, and that makes a a monumental difference to our ability to spot, like, the bigger ideas. Mm. But so then the other point I wanted to touch on was that this is partly why this year has been so draining and this work has been so draining. Like, I, I can't pull out of this. I'm constantly submerged in coronavirus news. I'm looking at what people are saying. I'm thinking about the subjects of past interviews. You know, some of the ideas, whether I like it or not, are just kind of swirling about in my own head. And I was talking to Liz Neely, my wife, about partly why some of these pieces have been so difficult to write, um, like much more so than a, some of the other big stories or features that I've tackled in the past. And I think that, as she pointed out, that to a degree, some of these features are much more akin to like a master's thesis hmm. than a typical magazine story. There is a process of organizing and generating knowledge that isn't just like pure reportage. You know, some of the pieces I wrote about um, why the coronavirus is so confusing or why we're trapped in a pandemic spiral, that really involved like looking at a huge number of different trends and actually trying to organize them into some sort of coherent scholastic framework, like a multi-part analysis of how we got to this point. And I think Liz's point feels right, that there is a, a sort of extra layer of like Shaping our understanding of this moment that I think has added to the complexity of the writing. I can't remember other, whether I said this the last time we talked, but I've never tried so hard to be right about something while also desperately hoping to be wrong. Hmm. You know, I want these pieces to, to stand the test of time. I don't want to write work in this moment that is going to be relevant like today and then be immediately out of date tomorrow. Part of this idea of um, creating these like platforms for people to stand on and feel some stability is that those platforms have to be as timeless as possible in a changing moment like this. Doing the platform work is useless if the platform erodes within a week. So there is a process of trying to sort of anticipate and future-proof the work. Right. That also adds to the challenge of doing it.
2: Yeah, it's interesting going back and le- reading like uh, how the pandemic will end, which came out in March. And, you know, the platform is still very solid, but there would just be yeah. like these occasional lines that were really about what the White House was going to do. Totally. That are just like, oh, that board and the platform is missing.
3: You know, it's just like... Yeah, it is it is really interesting looking back at it because I think like, I actually, yeah, I'm proud of that piece. I, I think it still holds up nine months later, despite everything. You know, there's a few things that I think I was both too pessimistic and too optimistic. Uh, I think we actually ended up doing pretty well on ventilators in particular. That's great. I think I massively overestimated the effect that having intransigent politicians actually catch the virus themselves might have. (laughs) And then there are things that I think have been crucial components of the pandemic story, which are not really mentioned in that March piece. The racial inequalities is a very obvious one, which I think I started writing about in April. And I think some of that only really became clear when the racial data first came out in April, but I think was abundantly obvious and predictable to anyone who had any expertise in health inequalities before then.
2: one of the things for me that has been so striking about this year and what this virus has done is it feels to me like it has if there was shit it's exposed it (laughs) you know family life friends work and then much larger societal things like if there was stuff it's been exposed and I wonder what you feel like the virus has exposed.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that has been a running theme of much of the work that I've done this year. Um, So just take the two cover stories that I wrote for The Atlantic. The first one about how the pandemic defeated America, which came out in August, was really about all of those pre-existing weaknesses in that piece, I argued that the reason America has mishandled the pandemic so badly was not just to do with Donald Trump, although obviously he is a central factor, but that it had a multitude of vulnerabilities. Um You know it tore apart inequities that have been um lingering since the very founding of this country. It exploited the um understaffed nursing home system it exploited the overstuffed prison system it exposed our catastrophic underfunding of public health. And I think it exposed a lot of America's exceptionalism and hubris. You know, this was the country that supposedly was going to do better at a pandemic than any other nation, a prediction which now seems absolutely laughable in hindsight. Mm. So there were all these problems. There were problems about our distrust of expertise, our use of social media platforms that act as radicalization engines. And then, of course, there's Donald Trump, who has a sort of unique place here because he is both a catalyst for this crisis, but also a symptom of a lot of these problems that precede him. And then in the most recent cover story, this one about how the world of science was shaken up and reacted to the uh, pandemic, The themes are actually very similar. Um, In many ways, scientists have really risen to the occasion and pulled off amazing feats, not least of which was the creation of two, at least two effective vaccines in an extremely short amount of time. But science has also struggled in many ways this year. There's been a lot of shoddy work, either because of a lack of coordination or because people who didn't have expertise in new areas rushed into them because of the allure of prestige and contributed to work that reinvented the wheel or wasn't very good and that led to misleading messages rather than actually helpful ones. All of these effects were the result of the way science had been built well before 2020, Mm -hmm. you know, the the vaccines are the product of investments in mRNA technology that well preceded the rise of SARS-CoV-2. A lot of the problems and the successes have stemmed from innovations in sharing scientific knowledge, in, in publishing papers early, in making the whole scientific process more transparent. And all of this is affected by academic incentives, which rather than rewarding people for doing the most rigorous possible work, actually just reward people for publishing a ton of papers in prestigious journals. Mm. And those incentives naturally push scientists towards smaller, more piecemeal, less rigorous work. And that's not to say that, like, everyone does that many people are capable of resisting it but that pull remains and it became even harder and stronger during the pandemic because of the international tension that we the public and the media foisted upon literally anything that was written about covid-19 so again you know everything that happened in 2020 is a reflection of everything that came before mm. And it is truly impossible, I think, to deeply understand what has happened this year and what the pandemic meant and what it will mean for us going into the future if we don't understand all of those societal and historical factors that have shaped the experience this year. It also just speaks to the absolute like, vastness
2: and ubiquity of this virus and its impact that like, you can answer that question from so many different vantage points you know it's like here's what exposed about society about our politics about our media about the way that science is structured i mean it's it's almost like there's nothing that it
3: didn't touch yeah and in many ways my entire body of work this year has really been a vast attempt to answer that question in lots of different ways and and i think the question really is What does the COVID-19 pandemic say about our soul? Well, forgive me for this, but what does it say about yours? Like, what have you learned about yourself in this? That I'm terrible at (laughs) (laughs) self-care? I think it's definitely made me ask new questions about what journalism is capable of doing and what types of journalism matter in moments of crisis. I didn't think at the start of this year or even when I came back from book leave that this is the type of work I'd be doing. I didn't, you know, if you said to me in mid-March, what you're going to do for the rest of the year is to write eight magazine length features and 12 or 13 other big feature length stories and nothing else about one thing. I would probably have laughed. Um, It has made me rethink like how I self describe so rather than just a science journalist i've said repeatedly throughout the year that i think this is much more of a science story and that many of my like mvp sources are not like the traditional people who i would have talked to in the past for the type of work i used to do there's a lot more historians anthropologists sociologists uh, i've deeply loved knowing more about those fields of expertise i've been grateful that i haven't broken But I do feel very close to it. Um, It has been a—I've said this a a couple of times now during this interview—but it it has felt like a very brutal exercise, and I haven't. You know, I took one week off at the end of July, which was great. I tried to take another week off at the end of September, and in the middle of it, Trump got COVID. (laughs) so what was what was your reaction when that news broke (laughs) it's not not fit for podcasting (laughs) it just feels like part of a trend for 2020 you know like 2020 is not content to lay you onto the floor it will absolutely kick you in the groin while you're down (laughs) there and there's something about like the relentlessness of it you know i think um i said that like I haven't broken, but I have come close. And I think the last couple of months have been especially ruinous for my mental health because I've been staring at the sun for nine solid months and because some of the more recent stories I've done have been about um, healthcare workers in particular and much of what they are experiencing and many of the stories that they have told me are horrifying. Mm. Um, You know, people have talked about experiencing so much death that they don't even know how to process it, like seeing death when they go home, um, having to emotionally shut down because they can only zip up so many body bags. The scope of the tragedy in the healthcare system right now is is truly astonishing. You know, I could say the same thing for many of the long haulers I've talked to, you know, people who are still struggling with debilitating ongoing symptoms eight, nine, ten months into this, mm. um, who are now facing in the coming months the 1 year anniversary of being sick who are struggling to access disability benefits or get any kind of medical support at all and who are now seeing the sort of wave of new people who will likely join their ranks in the near future it's it's a lot and it is difficult work not just holding in the full scope of this crisis in the kind of journalistic make sense of it all way that we've already talked about but just to actually stare the full scope of the tragedy in the face that has just been devastating i'm sort of hesitant to think about like how much to say about it because on the one hand i don't want to sort of be melodramatic about what i'm experiencing relative to all the other groups that have also had a very difficult year but i think in the interest of like being open about mental health stuff um i do not sleep well on more nights than i sleep well Mm. I am not depressed, but I have experienced depression before in my life and I know what that feels like and I can see that coming. And it feels, I don't know, I I, um, I need a break. So I'm actually going back on book leave in January for a few months just to take a little time away from the pandemic to kind of recoup my reserves and try and like regain a bit more resilience, which has been sort of badly lost this year. Mm. It, it probably says a lot about uh, what 2020 has been like, and about the current state of my mental health, that the idea of writing half a book in <laughs> four months <laughs> feels like. A break. like it feels like going to a spa, Max. It feels like it feels like a radical act of self-care, like Just writing a book. Fa-
2: take an easy crash on a book.
3: <laughs> That's right. Writing a book, famously, a uh, restorative and deeply relaxing activity. I can't wait.
2: Oh, man, I gotta say, I I appreciate you sharing that because I I do think that people don't talk about the mental health impacts of mm-hmm. this kind of work very often. Um, yeah, and and i think particularly you know people who have seen you have the year you just had you know i mean your work this year was ubiquitous and you you were standing on that platform for the biggest and most difficult story to tell that most of us have lived through i think and yeah and to know that while that was happening it was having a real impact on you i think I don't know, man. I think that's pretty important to say out loud.
3: Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I want to say two things about this. So the first thing I wanted to say about this is that I realized a couple of days ago that a lot of the sources I have spoken to, you know, like a lot of the public health folks, sociologists, scientists, um, all the people who've been thinking about this for the same amount of time, have been thinking about it and and longer. I've seen a lot of them talk about how their camaraderie with each other has provided a massive source of comfort in this very difficult year. That even when you know they're getting harassed at work, or when people are calling them do mongers, uh, you know, sliding into their DMs, whatever, the fact that they have found new colleagues, um, have found new collaborations, has made a huge difference to their mental health, and. I have a little bit of that. Like I said, the Atlantic newsroom is very generative. My wife is immense as an intellectual co-conspirator and a a sounding board for ideas. Uh, Many of her ideas are reflected in my work. But I definitely don't get that same camaraderie because as the journalist, even for the sources I actually really like and love talking to, I don't get to be their friend, right? Like, I don't get to, like... Have the Zoom calls or like chat with them and share like the war stories about mm-hmm. how bad everything is. I have to deal with that myself because of that tension that we always have to maintain with our sources. So, like, the, a lot of the folks who have actually, I think, gone through the most similar experiences to me this year are also the ones who I don't really get to talk with about it other than through interviews and that I think is hard in a way that I hadn't really thought about until like maybe a couple of days ago do those interviews ever like get to a point
2: where they stop being informational and start being like
3: commiserating in some way like rarely i try not to let them get to that point i mean a little bit right like when you actually are on the same wavelength as people you know and you're both like my favorite interviews are the ones where the source and I are actually engaged in a little bit of a communal attempt to make sense of what is going on. You know I feel really good when I get to like interpret what someone has just said to me and say, "Does that sound right?" and they go, "Yeah, that sounds really right and then they can sort of riff off of that. I think sort of sort of like um, thinking
2: out loud together.
3: Yes, I really enjoy that in fact that like the reporting is actually the part of this that I most enjoy, like actually that sense of. Real time sense making with other people who are in the thick of this is very fulfilling and it, it sort of helps to take my head out of that very difficult headspace. But, you know, I did talk to um, a woman named Jessie Gold, who is a psychiatrist who specifically deals with uh, healthcare workers, uh, the mental health of healthcare workers. And I was asking her about the mental health of healthcare workers. And a lot of what she said was basically directly relatable to me. And, you know, it's very hard at that point to to remember like, okay, I'm not, this is not like my therapy session. (laughs) I'm doing a job here. Um, But, you know, she did say stuff that I've really thought about. And one of them is, it's very easy in the middle of a crisis to sort of explain away what you're feeling and to say, of course, I'm feeling anxious or stressed or, you know, of course, I can't sleep because everyone can't sleep. It's a pandemic. But she suspects that after healthcare workers get past this big surge, that's when a lot of them are going to sit back and suddenly realise like, oh, shit, I need help. Mm-hmm. And I, that feels very relatable. Like I, I feel like even now at this point when like I have just filed my last story for the year, I know I'm going into book leave. I can sense that feeling of this very long, deep exhale and suddenly realizing, like, actually, like, I'm in a bit of a state right now. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, it's like uh, you've just been keeping that at bay for the better part of a year.
3: Right. Like, you know, you're just running and running and running this long marathon and then you get to the end and you suddenly realise, like, oh, look, my legs fell (laughs) off on mile 18. Um, Who'd have thunk it? Um, Okay, so and then you, you mentioned the work I've done and how well it's been received. So that's been really interesting because I think that the attention to the pieces I've written has been just an order of magnitude higher to anything I've done before. And that's felt both... Very gratifying. Like I know that the work is making a difference to readers' lives. I know that it has sort of changed the narrative about long haulers, which I'm very proud of. I know that it has had an impact, but it's also felt weird. So Delia Kai interviewed me for her newsletter, D's Links. It's a fantastic interview and newsletter. People should check it out. Uh, yeah. I mean, subscribe to Delia's newsletter. It's so, so great, especially for like the listeners of this podcast. Yeah. You'll love it. Uh, D-E-E-Z links. Um, and I said to her that it's like Ed Yong has become a character in the season of Pandemic, <laughs> whom I only occasionally write for and play and now bizarrely have to live up to. So, like, the fact that the work has this recognition and that I have this newfound recognition is great, but it also creates pressure. It creates pressure to, like, constantly get things right. Um, So I have, like, baseline a somewhat anxious personality anyway. Like, I I worry a lot about the quality of the work and whether it's good and accurate and whether, you know, just done the reporting well enough. And, you know, I I said to Delia on a newsletter, I you know, I came into journalism in a slightly sideways route. I I Started a blog and then did a bit of freelancing and then sort of got into this. So I've always felt a little bit like, um, like always a tinge of imposter syndrome, which is, you know, wild when I now am in a situation like this of being like a recognized pandemic reporter. I remember seeing someone say, like, tweet a piece of mine about three months ago saying something like, another Ed Yong piece. He doesn't miss. And when I see stuff like that, I don't think, oh great, job's done. <laughs> I think that person is going to be mad when I miss <laughs> right. next time. Right. When right.
2: I when I inevitably miss.
3: Like, better not screw up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, how intense is the backlash gonna be when when the miss happens? Um so yeah, there's been that pressure. Um I do think that um One thing I've tried to resist very hard this year has been – so I think we have – We don't need to name names. Like everyone listening to this can think of multiple examples of people who suddenly got a bigger platform, fancied themselves an expert on everything, and then just started weighing in on like every possible aspect of the pandemic. Like people who suddenly got epidemiology degrees in spring and then immunology degrees in summer and are now experts on like vaccine implementation by the winter. I am not those people and I don't want to be them. I, like, I'm very, very clear that I am a journalist and not a pundit and that the value of my work comes through reporting rather than opining. And I've just tried to hold to that throughout the year, even as the work gets more prominence and recognition. I want readers, I don't want fans. Like I don't think that helps me or anyone. It doesn't feel like it's a motivator to do better work. I'm glad that people are you know reacting to it and finding value in it, but I think that the way it should work is that I should be judged based on the quality of the writing rather than to get to a point where the writing is judged based on who I am. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want people to think like, this is an amazing piece just because it is my byline on it. Like that is a path to, I think, arrogance and sloppier work and acting like a diva and all of the things we see among like the many of the worst exemplars of our profession. I want to focus on the work. I want to use whatever extra recognition or prominence i have this year to try and lift as many people up as possible you know if i have accrued a ton of social capital in 2020 i've got to spend it because there are so many people who are also doing amazing work Mm. and like i know well enough how this industry works to to be clear that recognition isn't just a factor of quality like we aren't in a meritocracy it also comes down to so many other things like Luck and privilege, the kind of newsrooms that we find ourselves fortunate enough to, or unfortunate enough to be in. So I sort of feel like the more attention on the pieces that I've written, the more the need to make sure those pieces are solid and also to like give back to the community. Man, that feels like such a uh, wildly healthy
2: approach, Ed. <laughs>
3: Well, it's not, I mean, it's in some ways, it's not healthy for me because it does add like extra burden on top of all the stuff we've discussed. But I think that's how I get out of this with my integrity intact.
2: Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, one of the other things about this year is that I feel like it's reinforced the idea for me that like opposing things can both be true, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear you sort of describe like, on the one hand, feeling like, real imposter syndrome still. And on the other hand, acknowledging that the work is having a huge impact. And it sounds to me like what you're describing is sort of like finding the middle ground between those two things.
3: Yeah, I think that's right. Someone asked me like how I was feeling. I think after like the first big cover story came out, um, someone who I've known for a while asked me like how I felt to go from like writing weird nature stories to this like massive blockbuster magazine piece and it was i think i said i hate it but i want more right <laughs> <laughs> like i don't want to sound ludicrous about this like of course like it's nice to see your peers recognize your work and it's especially nice i think having the work be shared because I, do, I like that's what i most want but it is a strange feeling and i think it is like i felt this tension throughout the year like i think it's very easy to lose yourself amidst that and it, it feels like it, it takes actual effort to not do that.
2: I got a couple more questions before I let you go. Yeah, sure. One of them is, you've been talking to people throughout the course of the year who are either close to the White House or Mm -hmm. severely impacted by what the White House was doing. And Mm -hmm. it felt to me like in your work, Trump was always there, but never the central character, like never the point Kind of mm-hmm. And I wonder what what it's been like to talk to people who are working as hard as they are and watching America fail in the way that it did.
3: Yeah, um, I think it's been devastating. I don't think even the most seasoned public health people, the ones who had genuinely thought about pandemic preparedness and really warned about all of this, truly expected the, the magnitude of the failure. You know, obviously the people one degree of separation away from Trump feel that strongly. Um, But I think that effect cascades, you know, it it cascades all the way down to people at local public health departments, uh, many of whom have been harassed and threatened and doxxed and and all the rest of it. And I think that sense of uh, moral injury of trying to fight this crisis while other people are gaslighting you, are denigrating you, has been intense. And I am I am really worried about this, not just now, but in the long term. I think that a lot of healthcare workers are going to retire or burn out, or I mean, some of them have died, but I think some of them will just throw their hands up and walk away. I think some public health people will do the same, you know, from exhaustion, I, I think from from the moral ruin of seeing everything they hold here be taken in vain and, and sort of be fought against i i think what you said though about how trump is sort of like this lurking figure in the background a of lot of the pieces i've written and then occasionally like rises to a central prominent role i think that's right and i think that is a a specific choice of framing i do not think that donald trump is the single answer to why America has done so badly with this pandemic. I think he is an inextricable part of the country's failures. But I think any historical or analytical attempt to look at everything that's happened and ask how did it come to this, any attempt that only looks at Donald Trump or maybe even centres Donald Trump, I think has the wrong thesis and is ignoring other things that we still need to fix come January 21st of next year. If the
2: lasting um, impact of this on healthcare workers is that many of them are going to throw their hands up and walk away, what do you think the lasting impact on your work is going to be?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't actually know. I'm hoping to use some of this break, um, some some of this four-month spa trip when I'm writing a book, To think hard about that question, right? So, in some respects, I don't have to have an answer by the time I get back because, you know, the pandemic will still be happening in the spring, right? So, we'll still be in in the middle of the vaccination rollout campaign, and I think that the healthcare worker issue is part of many different issues that will leave long term scars upon this country, and part of the reason I want to take this break now rather than. I don't know, when I get vaccinated or when hopefully we start getting towards herd immunity and reaching some sense of normalcy. I think the reason why I want to do that now is so that I can be fresh to reach the period where we start getting towards normal, but there are still a lot of lessons to learn. Hmm. And I think when we get to that point, the propensity to forget and to sweep things under the rug to, you know, have the the details of this year be subsumed within the m- momentum of vaccination and the illusion of history, I think that pull will be very intense. And I hope to be able to think about stories at that point that ask, like, no, but really, like, what, what did we learn from this? Like, are we going to do better the next time? And I think that someone still has to continue banging that drum. I, I hope that I won't have to do that, like, Re- as relentlessly as this year so maybe not eight features a year
2: but you're going to be on this story for a long time
3: i i think so um i think the story will demand it you know I, before covid19 happened other than the big 2018 feature i wrote for the atlantic like many of the infectious disease related stories i wrote basically just sank without a trace you know people aren't interested. I think that will change, but I think that what this year has shown is the value of covering those topics, even when they're not foremost on people's minds.
2: Well, Ed, it's been an unfathomable year. Yes. It feels like it's been about 10 years since we last talked. And I feel like as we wrap this up, I sort of want to play for you the way that we ended this conversation in March. Okay, can I just play something for you quickly?
3: Us in March, like those those young whippersnappers. I know they didn't know. Well, here's here.
2: I'm gonna play something that you said in March, and I just wonder. This is my last question. What what you would uh, what you'd say to this guy, March Ed? Right. Okay. Um,
3: about what was coming. That guy. Okay. Yeah. Let's hear it. I do feel ready. I feel up to the task. Um, I think it's going to be hard, but I hope it's enough. I don't know if it will be, but I think I feel, at the very least, I feel confident that that I can do my best. Oh, God. Um, I think I did do my best. Um, I think I can say that I did my best and that, I do think that the training that I had um, as a science writer and as an Atlantic writer really helped. Um, you know, I think that that youngin, uh, that, that that sweet summer child, had no <laughs> idea truly what you know. I actually, I did listen to that interview again in preparation for this, and I think, I think I said, "Oh yeah, you know, the Atlantic and I agreed that I would take like a month off book leave, and here we are." in December. I, I will say that my wife and I watched the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy again this Christmas, uh, th- this holiday season, and I have never related to The Hobbits uh, <laughs> so, so thoroughly as this watching. They, they took a whole new symbolism. Bilbo just wants to write his fucking book <laughs> and keeps on getting dragged into this ridiculous quest frodo and sam uh, on that like rock at the end of return of the king just surrounded by fire frodo's like i can't taste strawberries <laughs> anymore i don't remember the smell of grass uh, yeah it all feels it felt a little close to the bone
2: yeah i can imagine you left book leave for a month and found the story of your life
3: yeah i think that's fair and you know we it's come at a cost but it has also been tremendously rewarding and i really hope that it has made a difference and that it continues to make a difference and thank you
2: for your work this year thank you for uh, doing not one but two interviews with me oh thank you take care of yourself man
3: yeah thanks so much
2: listening to long form i'm max linsky my co-hosts are aaron lammer and evan ratliff our editor is janelle Piper, and our intern is susan peterson thanks to them thanks to our friends at mailchimp who made 2020 possible for the long form podcast they're going to make 2021 possible for the long form podcast and speaking of 2021 we will be back with new episodes in 2021 we're going to take a couple of weeks off put some of our favorite episodes back through the feed uh have a good break and we'll see you on the other side.
0: Support for long form this week came from listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks that you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening, your life just got a lot easier.